Hey everyone, it's Alex and Ben. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. Red rural counties, they feel the same when I go there. The people say the same things and they express the same issues. They feel completely disenfranchised from their own government. They feel that their voices are not heard. So we did something very, very different here in Baker City. Our business community was actually involved and came forth saying, can't we just declare ourselves a common sense sanctuary? Her response to the pandemic was hurting us more than COVID actually was. Cities and counties have relinquished their control to the state and we need to start taking that back at a local level. All right, everybody, today we're excited to bring you Baker City Mayor Carrie McQuinston. And Carrie is a seventh generation Oregonian, and she has been the mayor of Baker City for a little bit over a year now. And she made national headlines just a couple months ago by implementing what she calls a common sense approach to the COVID mandates and got a little bit of national attention from there in a sense, used that momentum to announce for governor. She also owns a publishing company and has spent significant time abroad as well, which we talk a little bit about in the podcast. But Ben, how did you think the episode went? I think Mayor McQuiston is the last of the, what I would say, top tier GOP gubernatorial candidates that we've talked to. And I think she's probably the most conservative, old school conservative, not the most Trumpy necessarily, but certainly like the Mm -hmm. most old school. Grassrootsy. Yeah, Yeah. grassrootsy conservative, I would say. So as you will hear in the podcast, that was challenging for me at times. We, We had some disagreements. At the outset, though, before we go any further, there is a discussion, a debate in this podcast about Senate Bill 744, which received a lot of press, both in Oregon and nationally, as quote, lowering the standards to graduate in Oregon because it removes the essential skill requirement as a prerequisite for graduating from high school in Oregon. I encourage folks to do their own reading about that. We posted on the liftoff articles from the Oregonian, which are more critical of the bill, and from OPB, which basically says it's a non-issue for folks to be able to read on their own. Mayor McQuiston makes a claim that Governor Brown essentially said that students of color couldn't be successful under this or something along those lines. You'll hear for yourself in the podcast. I have found no evidence of her making any statement like that. Here's what I did find. The deputy communications director at the time for Governor Brown's office, Charles Boyle, told Fox News or K2 in an email that, let's see, he said that the new standards for graduation will help benefit the state's Black, Latino, Latinx, Indigenous, Asian, Pacific Islander, tribal, and students of color. No explanation for what he means by that or how so. And then there's another quote from Mark Siegel, who is the communications director for the Oregon Department of Education, saying this, Senate Bill 744 does not remove Oregon's graduation requirements, and it certainly does not remove any requirements that Oregon students learn essential skills, including the demonstration that students have learned essential skills that are more inclusive and better reflect the learning of all students. Senate Bill 744 gives us an opportunity to review our graduation requirements and make sure our assessments control it, blah, blah, blah. It goes on from there. Those were the only two quotes I could find from state of Oregon, executive branch officials. I did not see, I looked through Governor Brown's press releases. Maybe I missed it. I didn't see it. In fact, one of the articles says that she quietly signed the bill, which I interpreted to mean she didn't come out with her own statement. So I just wanted to offer that initial fact check. I don't believe that the governor made those comments, but it was a fact, you know, education to tie a bow on this section, education was probably, this was the most divisive education conversation we've had on this podcast in part, because I think we're just very far, but she's very like small government. The government is creating more problems than they're solving. They need to get out of the way, let local jurisdictions do what they want. That is her belief that comes through really strongly. So Titus, did you have any highlight you wanted to mention before we jump in? Yeah, I mean, one thing we talked a little bit, actually, we talked pretty significantly about the urban-rural divide. And I won't just fault her for this. I would say most Republicans are sort of in this boat. But I think everybody on the GOP side knows it's a huge problem, basically, that rural counties are falling behind and that urban counties are getting ahead. But I'm, you know, just kind of seeing a lack of policy solutions in terms of what that could actually look like to solve that problem. And I'm really surprised that Really, no one has come out and said, and maybe people in the legislature have, but at least the candidates who've interviewed for governor and said, yeah, we should take more money that's going to Portland and Salem and give it to rural counties to fund essential services like the police, like education and things like that. You know, we talked about apprenticeships and sort of things like that. Yeah, that was just one thing I'd point out, not just for this interview, but I mean, we basically interviewed every major candidate for governor at, at this point. So I'm sort of curious to see how that 
formal agenda shapes up once whoever moves on to the general election actually moves on. And I would point out maybe one shocking thing for our viewers, but she talked about there's a lot of Democrats that she knows gravitating towards the GOP. And I think Ben's been flirting that way uh, for a while. You know, <laughs> know he's a declared Democrat. So I think that, that was her little sly at Ben for the thing that all of us know behind the scenes. Maybe the viewers don't actually know up front. So sorry, yeah. so, sorry to blow your case out in the open there, Ben. But I mean, it, it, someone had to say it, right? We're getting into the Christmas season. It's a time for change. You know, <laughs> I, uh, uh, yeah, overall, interesting episode. And yeah, I think that, you know, I think she will definitely actually get a pretty significant share of the vote, even though I think that she's last right now in fundraising, because I think that, you know, she does really have that grassroots appeal. And I think that, you know, a number of folks will reward her with the vote in the primary because of that. Well, we should know there are, there are several other candidates aside from the ones that we've interviewed. I mean, and it's hard, like, what is a top tier candidate? What is a mid tier candidate for governor? It's not, it's, it's just hard to say. We don't have, I don't, I don't think I've seen any polling with all of the names on the ballot on either side since we started. Like there was some initial pre-primary polling on the Democratic side that actually showed Attorney General Rosenblum leading the field in name recognition. I haven't seen anything like that since to help us figure out where folks are at. My guess is most voters really don't know who most of these candidates are. It's still pretty early. Mm-hmm. So as as things go, I think the podcast is going to continue to try to interview gubernatorial candidates, congressional candidates, legislative candidates, et cetera, and other folks who are not candidates, journalists, former elected officials, lobbyists, potentially, to try to have a well-rounded conversation and build a greater understanding of this state and where we're going. So with that, let's jump into the episode with Baker City Mayor Carrie McQuiston. Enjoy. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. Today, we're very excited to bring you Baker City Mayor Carrie McQuiston to the podcast today. Mayor, how are you doing today? I am excellent today. I'm home for a couple days on break for Thanksgiving, so I get a couple days to relax off the road. So very, very well. (laughs) Very nice. Yeah, and I just came back late from Alabama last night. I got home at about 1 a.m., so I'm a little off on my game today. So so Ben, you'll have to carry us through the podcast. Hey, what else is new, Alex? I'll put the podcast (laughs) on my back. Don't worry about it. (laughs) True, and I I will say my my favorite thing about this Alabama trip was we were driving by some random neighborhood, and there was a sign that said, criminals beware, armed neighbors, or something (laughs) like that. This is like an official city sign, and I was like, it's a much different place in Alabama than Portland, Oregon. But, (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, we'll go ahead and kick things off. So so, Mayor, one thing I want to, you know, ask you about, and we usually sort of dive right into the policy questions, but one thing that really interested me about your background is that you had spent some time in Japan. So tell us a little bit more about that. How did, you know, how did you end up in Japan? How long were you there for? What was that experience like? The experience was wonderful, and I'm so glad I did it. So I attended and graduated from Willamette in Salem, and my degree was international studies, Strangely, my emphasis was German, not Japanese at the time, but I'd taken maybe one year of of Japanese. And then there was an opening, uh, I think there was a JET and a KET program through Willamette. And so the interviews were actually with the embassy up in Portland. And I went up there and interviewed, got the job, and ended up going over there right after college for about a year. So, and it was a little bit unusual because usually it's just teaching English but they put me in all kinds of, of strange <laughs> job situations there. I, I was the uh, the voiceover voice for a little yellow school bus on a series of educational videos. I ended up uh, wow. leading some international seminars in this conference center right by Tokyo Disneyland. So yeah, great experience. That's very cool. Yeah, and my and the reason I had to ask the Japan question too is because I read the Phil Knight's biography, which I cannot believe I'm blanking on the name, but it was such a wonderful book and his stories of living in Japan and sort of how it influenced his life. And then, you know, literally how the country helped to build Nike was just quite an experience. So, but yeah, good to good to hear a little bit more about that. So just transitioning here. So we know that, you know, Baker City, uh, which you are your mayor of right now, and how long have you actually been mayor for? I was elected just about a year ago now. Hmm. Okay. And this is your first term then? This is my first term. I'm, yeah, just starting right in the middle of my first term. Okay. So, so, so tell us, so what, what made you, you know, decide to, to want to run for mayor? You know, what was kind of your interest in getting a little bit more involved in public office? Yeah, you know, a couple of years ago, I wasn't interested in running for public office. Hmm. But when 2020 hit and I was seeing the impact of all of the mandates and things on our community, it was time to step up. And people actually come forward and asked if I would run for city council and see if I could do that. People had been of course, subject to the mandates. Their businesses had been shut down. They were losing their businesses. They were closing. 
moving across the state line to Idaho. People couldn't even get into the city hall to pay their own bills in person at one point. So it was very frustrating. And we had a very far left-leaning mayor, council, and city manager. And all of that changed at the beginning of this, this last year. So big changes there. And I stepped up and wanted to do that. And then from there, the things that I was doing very quickly as mayor in Baker City snowballed nationally and then across the state. And so it was a, a grassroots effort to almost recruit me through through that to run for governor. So, so we'll, we'll jump into the COVID policy issue in a second, but on a broader level before we go there, something we talk a lot about on this podcast, we write about it in our newsletter, The Liftoff, is the urban-rural divide and how yes. different people conceive of the urban-rural divide, what it means to different people. You've obviously got a unique perspective. You've lived in urban areas, in Seattle, in Japan, and you also obviously now live in a rural area and are deeply in touch with that community and cultural differences that exist there. So when someone says the urban-rural divide, how do you conceive of that in the Oregon context? What does it mean for our state? There is a very distinct urban-rural divide, and some people call it the north-south or the east-west divide, but it's it's urban-rural. So I I was uh, raised on a cattle ranch here in Baker County, but I also lived over in Salem for several years, and the divide is distinct. Um, When I travel all across the state, I don't think there's been a county that I've missed on this campaign at this point. And during my lifetime, I've been through every county in the state more times than I can count. And so there's 29 more red rural counties and they feel the same when I go there. The people say the same things and they express the same issues. They feel completely disenfranchised from their own government. And then when you go into say Multnomah County, it's a little bit different vibe. You know, the people are more urban. They're not as connected to the same issues as the rural citizens are connected to. There's a vast difference. And when I say vast, I mean vast. I mean, I've actually heard elected officials um, on certain parts of the states say they won't campaign over in Eastern Oregon. Or who cares about what the policy does to Eastern Oregon? I've literally heard this. There aren't enough people there to worry about. And there are enough people to worry about. There's 29 rural counties, I mean, red counties across the state. That's, That's a huge chunk of our state. And they feel that their voices are not heard. And you see that when they turn in their ballots during election time, a lot of them don't. They feel like, what's the point? And that's a terrible place to sink into for a state because all of these folks need to turn in their ballots and feel like their voices are being heard. I mean, they're not just um, something to discount. That's, it's a crazy feeling that you get. So one of the ways that this has manifested itself, it seems, and you've been on the front lines of this, is rural counties in this state and elected leaders in rural counties. We've spoken to Mayor Stan Pulliam on this podcast before, one of the other contenders for the GOP nomination. And he got a write-up in the New York Times for a similar situation, but basically rural folks saying, we're not following the governor's mandates. We think that they're wrong. We think they're hurting our businesses. We think they're hurting our children. Whatever the reason may be, we're sort of opting out. How did that manifest itself in Baker City? What did it look like, the resistance to the mandates? We were groundbreaking here in Baker City. So many cities like such as Sandy and and ours earlier on basically wrote a letter to the governor to start. And some of these cities, I I look at these letters like mother may I letters. Please let us open. Please let us survive. And that wasn't cutting it. So we did something very, very different here in Baker City. And our business community was actually involved and came forth saying, can't we just declare ourselves a common sense sanctuary? And that really didn't have the kind of teeth that I was looking for. I think that council was probably looking for. And after several hearings and uh, public meetings, I sat down and actually drafted it. It ended up being Resolution 3881. And what it was, was a declaration of crisis, uh, mental health, uh, crime, economic crisis in Baker City due to the governor's mandates, not due to COVID. So what we were saying is her response to the pandemic was hurting us more than than COVID actually was, which was absolutely the truth. And the media picked that up and called it a a common sense sanctuary resolution because it was the first of its kind. No one else had had done this. And what happened from there is is once the media coverage started, I mean, I ended up on uh, Fox News with Pete Hegseth first, and then Stuart Varney, Fox Business, and it rolled nationally back across the time zones to, to Oregon, and then it hit Oregon. And when that happened, that's when several other city councilors and county commissioners across the state picked up our resolution and either almost used it verbatim or edited it it to their own uh, city or county 
tailored it how they wanted it to read and implemented something very similar. So Klatskanai, I think, was first. Cove was next. Malala, Canby. It just it rolled across the state in one way, shape, or form. And, and that's when the pushback, I think, really started. About three days after that, Kate Brown lowered her extreme category to high for most of us, which was interesting. And, hmm. you know, I've heard others take credit for that. And I would never presume to take full credit for that because I think three things happened. One thing is our resolution took off like wildfire across the state. Second thing that happened is we've had, I think, 86 county commissioners sign on to a letter which gave some pressure. And I believe there were some Portland Salem area sports teams that were also putting pressure on. So I believe that she got dogpiled right then at that time, and that probably helped lower those restrictions. So as our listeners know, and you probably know this too, I'm the progressive person on this podcast, and Alex is the Trump's administration conservative. (laughs) My feelings on this, and we asked the mayor, Pulliam, a similar question, but let's presume that you become elected governor. As governor, you will have the ability to issue mandates in cases of emergency. You will have the ability to sign laws that the legislature passes that you may support, veto other laws that you oppose. What, you know, and each elected official, yourself included as a local and myself included as a school board member, we take an oath to uphold the U.S. Constitution and the Oregon Constitution and the laws and policies of our jurisdictions. Correct. If you are elected governor and the folks in Multnomah County and Washington County and Lane County decide, you know what, we're going to ignore Governor McQuiston's orders, we're going to ignore the laws that she signs because that doesn't strike us as common sense and we're just not going to follow them, what would your response be as governor to those counties exercising their own form of sanctuary policy? So you're saying in case they would like to implement a mandate? No, I'm saying- if you're governor and you sign a law or write a mandate that they don't like, what would you do if they decide not to follow the law that you've passed or the mandate that you've issued? Well, see, the difference here is anything that I would pass would not be violating the, the oath, the constitutional oath that you just mentioned. And I strongly believe that what Governor Brown is doing does violate the law and does violate the Constitution. But the and courts, that's the, courts, the difference. The courts have upheld that, though. There's no sure court. The, the court. There's been no court order that says the governor has violated the Constitution or even the laws of Oregon that I'm aware of. Yeah, there was actually a court ruling here in Baker County. It was Judge Matt Shirtcliffe that originally ruled that it had been, had been misinterpreted, misinterpreted and misapplied. And we had a Saturday morning Supreme Court ruling that was a very strange timing and very strangely done that overturned that, which obviously I disagree with. So you would acknowledge that you're violating the decision of Baker City and some of these other local jurisdictions are violating the Supreme Court's interpretation in Oregon? No, because when you look at the Constitution, when there is no separation of powers left, everything needs to flip upside down. I mean, the only power left is the power of the people. And there have been several cases at a city level and a county level where home rule should have applied. And what's happened over these years is cities and counties have relinquished their control to the state. And the home rule, that the local control has gone by the wayside we need to start taking that back at a local level. And we need, I think, a governor who will turn that back over as much as possible to a local level. And so I absolutely do disagree with the Supreme Court's ruling on this. And the way I would help fix that so that no future tyrant could implement that would be a constitutional amendment. I think that no other governor moving forward should be able to twist that law the way it's been twisted into a mandate through an OAR. And that's, that's another issue that, that I have there that's been implemented. I realize that there's a statutory basis for what she's done. But when you get these folks on OSHA or OHA, and they're on an appointed board, and they're legislating through OARs, I disagree with that. I think what that does is it takes away the representative republic from the voters. I mean, they're voting people into office that they feel aligned with how they think and who will pass legislation the the way they feel is appropriate. And when you have someone going and bypassing that, I think it overturns the will of the voters. I hear your frustration and I totally (laughs) acknowledge that your experience in Baker City probably looked a lot different than mine in Tigard. But my, 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 my flip side to that is, The way that I see it it, is that the Republic is actually most undermined when the participants in the Republic don't follow an agreed upon set of rules. Our system is built upon, you know, we have authority, the authority can be challenged in court, the courts kind of decide disagreements, and the system only really works if we all agree and acknowledge that 
those challenges are legally binding and we all have to play by those rules. And I guess what I was getting at in my question is, you call it what is common sense to you in Baker City might not be common sense to the folks who live in Portland and vice versa. And if we're living in a state where those sort of interpretations are subject to interpretation, I suppose, those sorts of rules are subject to interpretation, then the rule of law itself becomes undermined because your legitimacy as governor would be undermined in the same way that people are undermining Governor Brown's. And I, I worry I worry that's the end game of the urban-rural divide as we become, as previous governors have alluded to, ungovernable because these different local jurisdictions on either side of the mountains or north and south just say, you know what, I'm not listening to the other side because they're illogical, they're crazy, etc. So do you foresee that as something that could happen or, or do you think that there's a way to sort of bring people together under a common understanding? Yeah, I don't see that happening, honestly. There are things called peaceful non-compliance and civil disobedience. And that's an acknowledgement that just because something has been legally upheld doesn't necessarily mean that it's moral, ethical, or right. I mean, I could bring up Rosa Parks, for example. Would you disagree with what she did? Well, the interesting thing about the civil disobedience yes. argument in Rosa Parks is folks who take those kinds of stands suffer the consequences. There are penalties for those decisions. And eventually society came around and agreed the laws were changed. And there was a sense of righteousness that was reflected in those actions. I don't think anyone has withheld dollars from Baker City because of no. what they've done. I don't think that there's been a sort of, which is in some ways puzzling to me. I, I wonder, you know, it does seem like in some ways, I guess OSHA has has been fine. I don't know if there's folks in your community who've been fined by OSHA for violating the mandates, but that's one mechanism where the state has exercised that power. But in some ways, it sort of seemed like local jurisdictions have made their decisions and we kind of just keep moving. Yeah. And the fact is OSHA doesn't have the means to enforce at the level that it's trying to enforce. They are so backlogged and have been for so many months. They're years out. And, you know, you're talking about a punitive response for, from a governor. And is that really how we want somebody to rule? I mean, we want a leader. We don't want someone who's going to go in and punitively try to punish people who don't do what she says. And that's where we were. That didn't happen, which is also interesting. You know, we were told, don't stick your neck out first. Don't be the first one to roll this out. But so many businesses opened and so many cities and counties did open up and roll this resolution out that there was no coming back from that, which was interesting. We didn't receive any kind of pushback from the governor's office. Didn't hear from her. It was as if she thought we would just disappear, I think. So what my final question on this, and then Titus, I think my, I'm not sure where he'll want to go. He might have some follow-ups of his okay. own. Um, so I don't know if you're familiar with the Oregon Values and Belief Center, but they're a public polling firm, uh, public opinion research firm in Oregon. They do re really cool stuff. They, The founder, Adam Davis, used to work for one of the big polling companies, but basically created a nonprofit that is exclusively looking at creating public, public opinion research for the public so everyone can see it. And with the special attention to sampling of rural Oregonians and Oregonians of color who traditionally through public polling are underrepresented when opinion research is done. And on November 1st, they came out with a report that it frankly surprised me, the numbers here. The two that I wanted to highlight here were one, 70% of Oregonians as of November 1st supported masks in schools with only 23% opposed. And then 57% supported a K-12 vaccine mandate for kids 12 and older with only 33% opposed. And so I was thinking about that and I was thinking about the potential political implications of that because there's public re opinion research that shows that Governor Brown is unpopular right now. In fact, there's some, John Horvick just posted that she's the least popular governor in America. I saw that, yeah. But the, the polling this shows is that in some ways, her decisions on COVID are actually not the problem. And in fact, the public broadly agrees with at least those two K-12 specific provisions. And so I wonder if you've thought about you know the politics of your opposition to COVID requirements and mandates and how that might play with a general election audience. Yeah, I think about it, but again, that's one poll and there are other polls and each one says a little bit different. That's not the feeling or the feedback that I get even when I'm out in Portland or Salem. So, you know, who knows? Who knows? I mean, you can play with numbers just about any direction in these. Mm, okay, Titus, I'll hand it to you. 
Right. And yeah, I have, so one thing, Republicans seem to talk a lot about the urban-rural divide. You know, it's not just in Oregon, it's across the country. But one thing that I think that they're pretty slim on generally is like policy solutions, basically, of how we actually bridge these two gaps. And I could think of a couple myself, but I'm curious of, you know, you're obviously from a more rural area, you're the mayor of a small town. If you were governor, what are some of the policy changes that you would like to see to kind of help bridge this gap? Do you think it's more of, you know, is it is it cultural? Like, is it things that public policy can't tackle? Do you think that Budgets and allocations should be bigger to rural counties. What's sort of your agenda for rural Oregon if you were elected governor? Well, the, the, that's kind of broad because there are so many planks in the platform I could address. Some of the things that are, are happening, actually most of the problems that I hear people talk about are actually generated by our government here in the state. So when you go around the state and you ask about what are your problems with business, what are your problems with crime, with homelessness, with fighting wildfires, all of these things, they all point to failed legislation from Salem. And so one of those things would need to be tackled one item at a time, I think. It's a little more difficult to overturn failed legislation because as a governor, you can't just go on the books and say, I want this one gone and this one gone and this one gone. So that's a, a little bit longer process when it comes to appointing people to these boards and commissions that are implementing these horrific OARs. That's the first step. One thing, I mean, we could tackle one thing at a time here to answer your question. I mean, homelessness, for example, that, that's a big issue. Um, you've got homelessness problems that are actually created by the legislation and by a court case that upholds those. So if you've gone back and looked through what was just passed in the last session, it's essentially taking two levels of individuals and giving them separate rights, homeless and, and people with homes. So if you read the last uh, little bit that was passed, say a homeless person wants to come into the middle of city hall in Baker City and camp out. And that person finds it's objectively reasonable to stay there. But we decide, no, we're closing the doors at five and turning off the heat and the lights. It's time to go home. We can be sued and we will probably lose. There's a court case that was upheld in the Ninth Circuit Court saying that, okay, we, we can't break up those camps. We can't implement an ordinance that, that breaks up the homeless camps because we have to have something in place that we can't afford to set up in place for these folks. So all of that needs to be addressed. I mean, in an ideal world, here's what would happen. Local police, county, city police could approach the homeless person and say, you, you can't camp here. You're infringing on the rights of the, of the property owners right next to where you're camping on our rights. We're, we're going to break this camp up. But then say, hey, what's going on with you? And analyze that. Because we're tossing money just hand over fist, kind of in a splatter approach to cleaning up the homeless issue. What we need to come back to is, again, letting our local cities handle this. And that has to be done individually, I think. Um, you're never going to be able to just toss, hey, here's free housing at this issue and be able to solve it. Probably a third, it depends on the study, again, that you're listening to, but probably a third of these folks are choosing this as a lifestyle. And then probably two-thirds, you're looking at addiction and mental illness. And there's no system in place right now to individually talk with those folks and get them the help they need to get off the streets. So that ha that has to happen first, somewhere along the line. So, so that's that's a policy issue that needs to be put in place. But it, but again, you're looking at repealing and getting rid of some really bad legislation that's hamstringing people. And then you and, can get into to crime and everything else the same way. And so I want to talk a little bit more about that because at least with the the maps that just came out, plus yeah. where the general direction of the state is sort of trending over time, uh, I think that. From a conservative perspective, it's very unlikely that a lot of these pieces of legislation are going to be overturned, uh, even if we do have a Republican governor, because the Democrats will continue to control both the House, they'll continue to control the Senate. We would need quite the big red wave to make the sort of gains that would be possible to have a red trifecta, as some people call it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> only Ben understood that joke. Uh, the joke so is Sam Carpenter. Sam Carpenter, when he ran for governor <laughs> four years ago, ran on the red trifecta. He said they're going to have Republican majority in the House, Republican majority in the Senate, Republican governor, and of course, Democrats won all three. But Titus, continue. We, we, came, we came up a little bit short with the red trifecta, uh, even, even if it was great in theory. But, but I, I think that sort of, you know, leads it to the broader point, which you were talking a little bit about before, is that, you know, obviously this steamline trend for, you know, some of the rural counties to actually move from Oregon into Idaho, it's not uh, you know, if you look at some of the polling from the Oregon Values and Belief Center, it's not like the majority of folks in these rural counties support it, but it's a pretty significant number of folks who would be willing to actually take the plunge to move from Oregon to Idaho as their state. 
I'm just sort of curious from your perspective, is there ever a point that we could get to where you think something like that should happen? Or do you think, no, that's not really the right solution? Like we really need to come together as a state and keep working through these issues together? Well, I mean, they're definitely making their point in the level of frustration. I mean, that highlights it right there. These folks mm-hmm. are so done with what's happening in Salem that they would rather split off into a different state than stay here and fix this. You know, that that's huge. And my solution is, of course, you get a governor from Eastern Oregon in there, and that desire fades pretty quickly, I would think. I don't see that happening. I don't see constitutionally where the process is that moving forward. Depending on, on the map you see, it either ropes in part of Idaho, Oregon, and California, and sometimes not California. You would have to have voter approval, and then it would go to Salem, Boise, and Sacramento for their legislation to pass that. I don't see all three of them doing that. And then it would go to Congress. I just don't see where that process is that that would actually be able to continue forward. What was on the ballot and the different counties in Oregon, most of the time was just to either spend advertising money talking about it or instructing county commissioners to talk about the issue three times a year during a meeting. So that's where it is. It doesn't actually start the secession process at all. So yeah, I, I don't see that moving forward. Interesting. Yeah. And that was essentially the same answer that Congressman Benz came when he came on the podcast was that it seems more so to just be about expressing the frustration and sort of the level that it's gotten to than if this is actually something that would be possible. Even though polling does show that Idaho is very open to uh, making their power grab and taking some of Oregon. So our aggressive neighbors uh, have their eye on expansionism, uh, which is is a little bit funny. Uh, It's great. But so uh, just to transition a little bit, one thing I want to talk about, and I think Ben has some questions with this too, uh, is education. And specifically, there has been just a crazy number of stories about different school boards from across the state getting in fights, you know, votes over political symbols, things like that. But there's also been at least four Oregon superintendents that have been fired in the school year. I don't know if that's the most on record. Maybe Ben, you would have that statistic, but it seems pretty significant that this number of folks are being fired. And I I actually think that Republicans have very much stepped up their game and conservatives when it comes to actually running aggressively in some of these, you know, different school board elections. I think Democrats will start picking that up pretty quickly too. And that a lot of the focus has sort of been on issues with the right, but I think you could really quickly see that sort of transition to the left. And you could start to see some, what some might say are left-wing policies on school board, you know, start to be proposed and things like that. Just sort of curious. I mean, it seems like it's, you know, I mean, Newberg, for example, right? This has made national news for almost two and a half months now. And as I like to joke, no one even knows where Newberg is. Uh, Of course, people in Oregon do, but people outside of it don't. But just sort of the broader question is, you know, if you were elected governor, you know, what do you think is sort of your role when it comes to education, maybe actually helping schools focus a little bit more on schooling and not sort of some of these issues that we're seeing coming up at the school boards? Yeah, you know, if I had my druthers, there would be no politics and no religion inside a classroom. I mean, I don't think a a student on either side should go in and be experiencing that from the school board or the superintendent or the teachers. I want that to be a neutral learning environment where you're back to the basics, you know, the reading and the writing and arithmetics. You know, I I think the politics and the religion come from the household, and that's the parent's job to do that. And whenever I see a political indoctrination agenda put forth by a school board, I think that has to stop. I mean, clearly you're seeing critical race theory, you know, pushed in, in several school districts in several states. And you also are seeing several states that have banned critical race theory implementation. And that's just done by an executive order from the governor. And if that's going to continue to be pushed, I think it's racist and divisive and evil. And that's something that has no place in Oregon. Have you seen critical race theory in Oregon? And what does it look like to you? What have you yeah, seen? Yeah, I'm hearing, I'm hearing from different parents and things. I'm not seeing it here locally, um, but I do see little things that come out of, of the curriculum. Um, and it's essentially telling kids that you're either the oppressor or the victim depending on your skin color. And to me, that is so very, very wrong. And then when you combine that with removing the standards for our education, especially for minorities, I mean, we have a governor who said basically that our minority students aren't capable of learning at this level. Let's remove the standards for them. I mean, how insulting that this is not my experience with these kids at all. I don't, so, I, I do have to put, I don't think that's at all what was said by like, so- so okay, but that's not what the, the what what happened. Actually, the the legislation actually removes what's called the essential skills requirement 
The essential right. skills requirement was essentially a checkbox that wasn't actually preventing any students from graduating. You can go ask your local, go ask the local superintendent about how many students didn't graduate because they lacked the essential skills requirement. It's almost none across the state. The problem was it was a bureaucratic administrative hurdle that created a bunch more work for education administrators without actually contributing to the educational interests of the kids because it was so standardized and top down. So I think the narrative on that one is woefully inaccurate about what the actual legislation does. To the extent that it's making it easier, that's not reflected in the graduation rate. There's not actually more students graduating now because- Did you read her statement though that came across with that? What was her statement? The, the statement essentially was just as I as just said that uh, minority students uh, are not able to live up to these standards. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here and are not learning at this level, so we need to drop it. I mean, go back and find her statement. It, it's as insulting as it's possible to get, I think, and that's not how we need to be treating our students. We so will, we will certainly try to find that statement, but I yeah. would be very surprised to read the governor saying that. Um, well, that's, that's what it does. I, I mean, it's saying, hey, you can't compete, and we're focused on your skin color, and that's exactly the opposite that should be done. Well, so, so let's say, so in our system, one thing we know is true is that white students on aggregate perform better than students of color. They have higher graduation rates, they tend to have higher test scores, they tend to attend school more. That's across our system. When you look at outcomes that are predictive based on race, mm -hmm. what as a policymaker do you think, what responsibility do policymakers have to correct that or to invest resources in a way that will create more equitable outcomes? Do you think that should be part of the role or do you think those sort of disparities by race are acceptable within the system. You see that right there, you just hit on one of the major differences in the thinking between someone who leans to the left and someone who leans to the right. I'm not about equity. I'm about equality. And those two words are very, very different. I mean, one is saying we're going to keep monkeying with the system until we've evened out the playing field no matter how. Mine is you start everyone with the same rights and the same playing field, and they do what they can with it. You know, I think that every student, every person is given a God-given set of gifts that they're supposed to find. And they're in situations that they're supposed to experience. The other way of thinking is no, no matter who they are or what skill set they have, we're going to pull them up to the same exact place. And that doesn't work. It's never worked historically. Well, so, but the problem with the level playing field issue is level playing field implies that every student has the same opportunities and has the same resources and benefits, but some students come from low-income backgrounds. Some students don't know English when they arrive to school for the first time. Some students have access to tutors and, you know, have access to summer camps that cost a lot of money. And so the problem is we don't actually have a level playing field. And so I think the people who use the equity language are trying to acknowledge that differential and opportunity and say it's the responsibility of the state and the system to try to increase the level of opportunity for students who start behind these other students who have these greater opportunities. So how do you think about that? Like the lived experience of students in their homes obviously impacts educational outcomes. The purpose of the government is to preserve the individual rights, and those are outlined in our state and our federal constitution. And I don't know a single person who does not have those constitutional rights. That's what we're supposed to be preserving. We're not supposed to be turning everyone into a clone of one another with, with the exact same abilities and the exact same life. I mean, that's, that's not reality. We're all here doing different things, and we have different motivations and different minds and different emotional structures. And... Again, that's the difference between right and left, I think, is I want to focus on the individual and, and see what each of these people can do, you know, how, how much you want to accomplish in your life and, and work for it, you know, with the same basis of rights held intact. I don't want a socialist or a communist system where everyone is on exact equity, <laughs> you know, without working for it. That's different. No society has ever been successful with that kind of system set up. So my final education question, and this one is kind of specific to Baker City, um, sure. because I've followed Baker City schools a little bit for the last yeah. several years. So Baker City tried multiple times to pass a school bonds measure. In fact, they had not passed a school bond since 1948 until this last year, 2021. Local voters approved a $4 million school bond. The most recent one before that in 2018 was a $48 million school bond. And the basic reason, and this is, this is actually true across Oregon, right? Like 
a lot of rural schools, they tend to have older buildings. They have big HVAC needs. They're not, the buildings are not very energy efficient. They also don't have some of the amenities that newer schools have, like, you know, labs and CTE centers and other things that really provide tremendous benefit to kids. And Baker City, congratulations, by the way, on passing this school bond. They're going to get a $4 million investment that's going to be able to solve some of these problems, but I imagine not all. But there's a lot of school districts across the state who just can't pass a locally approved bond measure. And meanwhile, you've got Portland Metro districts, including the district that I'm in, where we almost always are able to pass school bonds and it allows us to build new schools, new facilities, new athletic facilities, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's one of the, you might not like the term equity, but it's it's equality. There's not an equal opportunity across the state for students, depending on where you live, what your zip code is. We've controlled for school funding at the state level where every student has the same formula across the state, but for school bonds and construction of facilities, that is still a very local decision. And it's creating pretty substantial inequality in the system in terms of access to resources. So Do you see that as a problem for rural folks and rural kids to not have those same opportunities? And do you think there's a policy solution at the state level to try to raise the quality of our facilities across the state? No, that should be a local decision by the voters. And, you know, listening and seeing why some of those bond measures were voted down before is because we do have some amazing older buildings still standing. I think there was a desire with the voter base to upgrade those and remodel and do some things along those lines for a while. That was the reason. Didn't expect that, (laughs) but thank you. Yeah, great. And I just want to ask one more education question before we transition. And Ben talked a little bit about, you know, how minority students have worse outcomes than than other students. And I, I mean, at least statistically, that definitely looks to be true, especially when you look at, you know, inner city Portland and things like that. I think one thing that gets left out of the conversation is there is a lot of rural schools that are completely failing students as well. I remember writing a piece a year ago or so for the Oregon Catalyst, and there was some schools in the sort of general bend area that were graduating like one in four students basically on time, which to me just seems like a, not even just a failure for the students, but I mean, frankly, just a political failure as well. It's it's sad that kids have to basically suffer through these educations that they know are not basically going to put them into a good place to succeed. I'm curious from your perspective of one thing that we have talked about quite a bit on this podcast is sort of the things like apprenticeship programs and things like that is that in terms of education reform, like, is there specific policies that you would want to see or that you would want to see implemented coming into office? Like, would it be sort of apprenticeships or like different paths for high school students and just sort of the pipeline to college? What does that kind of look like in a, a McQuinston administration? Yeah, I think Oregon has a history and it's getting worse of just tossing money into the school system. And we have all of this money, a record amount being tossed into the school system, but our results are rock bottom. And I can tell you, last year, I took my child out of school. I have a fifth grader this year. And so in fourth grade, I took her out and I homeschooled her myself. And it's a real eye opener how little money you need for, you know, getting the the books, the the pencils, you know, that material and focusing on getting that child a good education. And then what's happened this year is because of all the mandates and things like that, we've established, um, I think in Salem and Portland and and Ben, they're calling them pods, but over on this corner of the state, we're calling them one room schoolhouses where we pay a teacher to essentially homeschool. It's like homeschooling on steroids. And you get a group of kids to, to homeschool like this, to be taught that way. And it cost me about $260 a month as a parent to achieve that. If we had the money following the kid, could you imagine the level of education? I mean, these, these kids are, are learning things that kids in public school sure aren't getting. And if we put a little bit of uh, what kind of free thing? market enterprise into these school systems, could you imagine where, where, the, where the parents got to actually choose where, where the, the kid went that way and have the money follow? It'd be great. Sorry for interrupting, but I was curious, um, you said there's things that they're learning in the pods that they're not learning in the schools. What kind of things are pod specific that only those kids are learning? It depends on the pod. It depends on, the because the parents are largely with the teacher driving the curriculum. Like, um, <laughs> this might sound a little bit out there, but the science lessons are phenomenal. Um, my child got to help dissect a, a cow eye <laughs> and the tongue. And so oh, like, wow. these, these kids understand biology. I, I only got to do the the, the fish head, I think, the frogs. cow eye. <laughs> we did frogs. Yeah, we did frog dissections in TTSD. 
Yeah, and I, I'll go into the school, um, our, our school we call it, but I'll, I'll be going in there on Monday to teach some probably basic Japanese for an hour to these kids. They'll get a little bit of language lesson in there, you know, maybe I'll come back and do Spanish or German, you know, these kids are, are getting different things from all over the place they wouldn't get in public school. So. And so are, are the pods trying to align the curriculum with state standards for subject areas, or is it sort of like, we don't really care about those things, we're going to teach what we want to teach? It's this, it's that and, <laughs> because when you're homeschooling, it's about every other year you have to pass a state test, which I get the point of because, you know, you could have, you could have people yanking their child out of school and just saying, hey, go play, you know, and there really would be no homeschool happening. And so these just make sure that they're up to the standards with English and math. And, you know, our teacher constantly manages that. So those basics are getting taught, you know, in spades. It's wonderful. But then everything else happens along with it, which is great. So. Okay. Well, the, the yeah. final category here is primary politics. Um, so one thing that's been surprising for me as a Democrat okay. is how many Republicans want <laughs> to be the GOP nominee. <laughs> Everybody on the Republican side. We just heard recently that um, House Minority Leader Christine Drazen, um, a state rep from Canby, has jumped in. Um, you know, there's uh, Mayor Stan Pulliam, who's mayor of a similar sized city, Sandy. You've got Dr. Bud Pierce, the GOP nominee previously. Uh, we just talked to Jessica Gomez, a very uh, successful small business owner from, I guess not even a small business owner, a business owner from Southern Oregon. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting some folks too as well. And, and then above that, there's folks- Bridget who, Barton, Dr. Oh, Bri Pierce. Yep, Bridget yeah. Barton we spoke oh, come to. Come on, Ben, we've had them all of them. <laughs> a, successful, <laughs> a successful political consultant. And now you've also got Betsy Johnson, who's like a conservative Democrat um, who is running as an independent, not in the primary. So my question for you is, given that complex and broad field of candidates, what makes you different as a candidate from all those other candidates? And um, what's your, how are you going to win? How do you differentiate yourself from, you know, the voters have a ton of choices in this election, yeah. this primary election. So why are they going to pick you and what makes you different? Yeah, so it's fascinating, isn't it, politically? <laughs> it really is. Yeah. So last time, uh, I believe there were 13 Republican gubernatorial candidates. So this is not really that unusual. I think it's just really publicized this time with the emphasis on that. Yeah. And so we're all thinking about it. Um, but and what happened this time? People are raising a ton of money, which is different. They are. But last time on the Republican side, you have to look at it. Newt Bueller spent, what, $20 million? It was record-breaking and lost. And what I hear around the state, I, I hear two things. Money will not buy at this time, and we are not voting for another I-5 corridor candidate. I'm hearing that even in the I-5 corridor, if you can believe it. So there's a very big shift in mentality that's happening there. Um, the other shift that I'm seeing is, you know, when we passed that resolution, that was the first little hint of it. I started getting emails from lifelong diehard Kate Brown Democrats who were switching party affiliation and coming over this direction because they were sick of the mandates. And I started then getting trickled in little amounts of donations from Democrats. And then when I go across the state and I'm at these events, I start seeing lifelong Democrats attending the events and saying that they are re-registering Republican so that they can vote in the primary. That's really interesting to me, that shift. I haven't seen that before. So I've, I've been a, a PCP with Baker County Republicans for years. So I've, I've sat through so many forums and so many elections. This one's different. It's really interesting. But what's different about me is, again, I, I have been living on the east side of the state. So I have a very different perspective coming in. And then I have a strange combination of the skills. It's almost like if you picked the skill set and the background from each of the leading candidates and rolled them into one, that's me. You know, I'm a small business owner. So I, I lived, you know, out of the area and climbed my way up the corporate ladder to a corporate executive vice president position before coming back to Baker City. And that's where I started my own publishing company. So I've been running, owning and operating that since 2007. So I, I know what it's like to run a business in Oregon. So I have that. And now as mayor, I'm very fully aware of water, wastewater, infrastructure, public safety, you know, police and fire. That all falls under the purview of mayor and city council. So that's an interesting skill combination I have. I think that combines a couple of the candidates there. And then just from, you know, being on this side of the state and being able to really relate to those 29 counties that have felt left out for so long, it's, it's an interesting combination. And then Betsy Johnson, I mean, she's uh, not independent as far as I can see in her paperwork. She's dropped her party affiliation to an NAV. She's not affiliated entirely. 
So she'll be coming in during the general, skipping straight over the primary and by petition coming onto the general ballot. So that'll be interesting also, yeah. Yeah, that'll be very interesting. Unfortunately, we've we've actually let most of the other GOP candidates off the hook with this question, but I just remembered it. And I remember okay. we asked our first <laughs> candidate, I'm curious of who do you think, right, there's a bunch of Democrats who have jumped in. They're all raising a lot of money. They all have maybe not high name ID, but at least a lot of recognition amongst the party base and, you know, uh, sort of the different players. Who do you think is going to come out ahead in terms of the Democratic primary? So when I look at that, I toggle between Kotech and Kristoff. But again, what I'm hearing across the state is because I'm a seventh generation Oregonian. And that's the other thing I'm hearing from both sides is we want a, a native Oregonian or someone who's lived here and has deep roots. And the perception of Kristoff is not that he has that. So I am thinking right now it's going to be Kotech in the general. Okay. You've, you've heard it right here, folks. Well, prediction. That's my prediction. <laughs> yeah. Well, if uh, if you make it to the general and Speaker Kotek makes it to the general and Betsy Johnson, we we'll, we'll do a, a three way pod, the first ever podcast okay. debate on the on the Oregon Bridge. How about that? Although uh, Titus, you you and I probably won't be allowed to moderate that. I think we're probably a little too biased. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, uh, well, Mayor, thank you so much for for taking the time to to join us and chat today. Uh, before we let you go. Where can folks find you if they want to volunteer for your campaign, if they want to donate, if they want to learn more about where you stand on the issues, uh, where can they go and find more information? www.carriemcquiston.com is where I would start and then hit social media. You know, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter and Instagram now. So I'm everywhere. Do you know what the Twitter handle is? You know, not off the top of my head. I think it's Carrie for Oregon with a, with a four, number four and an O-R. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll have to. This is how we know if the comms teams are well trained or not. So we'll have to fact check that uh, once we hop off. But yeah, go, go go check that out. And then also, you know, I have an events calendar on Facebook and then on my website, and I'm all over the state. You know, I, I'm all over the state, and I'll be back all over the state again, so people could see me in person if they wanted to come ask questions. Great. Well, Mayor, thank you so much again for taking the time to join us. And everybody, thanks again for tuning in. Uh, please make sure to hit the subscribe and give us five stars and check us out on YouTube, uh, where our views are increasing dramatically and you can see our beautiful video coverage. Uh, so thanks again. Have a great day. Thank, thank you very much. much.